Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tasha Labs podcast, and today we're talking about staking on Ethereum, and specifically, we're going to talk about a new innovation uh, about Ethereum staking that's called restaking. Okay, so but first of all, a while ago, I wrote about Ethereum staking, as you know, um, as a um, kind of a financial primit primitive on the blockchain world in the proof of stake. Uh, blockchain ecosystem. And as you know, Ethereum moved to proof of stake fully last year. And uh, in the proof of stake uh, model, validators lock up a chunk of their capital to earn a right to validate transactions. And if they cheat, that capital will be taken away, right? So that's, that's the model. And uh, they obviously earn rewards for validating transactions. So even though that system is not designed as sort of a business model or financial product, de facto, I think, you know, if you consider the blockchain, public blockchain as a kind of a digital economy, that kind of proof of stake model essentially provides a financial primitive such just like, uh, you know, I, the closest uh, uh, analogy I will give is like uh, U.S. Treasury bonds or, you know, any country's uh, treasury securities. And that kind of primitive is the like proof of stake staking reward is serving in the blockchain world. So that's my view about how I approach and think about the staking uh, model. But today I invited the founder of Eigenlayer to talk about their new product and their new innovation basically opening up the design space around the ethereum staking i think there are a lot of economic issues around this that's really fascinating so i'm really looking forward to this uh but anyway uh, sriram how are you doing today excellent thank you so much tasha for bringing me on it's uh, i've been looking forward to it thank you for uh the opportunity yeah, sure. So uh, just to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about Eigenlayer and what kind of problem that you guys are solving? Yeah. Um, uh, since this is a more economics-focused podcast, I'm going to start with, the, with an economic lens. Uh, if you look at all of blockchains, you know, any decentralized application that is built on blockchain, um, you could separate, you know, you can ask what is the essential ingredient of a decentralized application. And the essential ingredient is decentralized trust. Mm. So everything that is like, uh, you know, we call as part of the crypto blockchain space is essentially underpinned by decentralized trust. And, uh, you know, from an economic viewpoint, a good that is so fundamental needs to have its own markets. We need to have marketplaces for buying and selling decentralized trust, for pricing and, you know, understanding the dimensions of decentralized trust and commoditizing it. So Eigenlayer is the first marketplace for decentralized trust. You can just buy and sell raw decentralized trust. That's it. That's, it's a two-sided marketplace. There are people producing this good called decentralized trust. There are people consuming it. And we just help make that market. Okay, when you say decentralized trust, I mean, it's a kind of an abstract thing, right? You cannot touch it, you cannot eat it. So what exactly are you <laughs> selling and buying? That's a great question. So what is decentralized trust? And what let's, let's try to get to the heart of this question. And I'm going to use Ethereum as my driving example here. Like, you know, Bitcoin first started with this idea of like, hey, I'm creating this, you know, uh, blockchain on which you can transact Bitcoins. You know, Bitcoins are created, Bitcoins are transacted. That's the two primitives that you can do on top of this, like blockchain. And to enable this, you know, there is a way that I'm creating permissionless blockchain, you know, but underwriting that permissionless blockchain is this proof of work. So that this is the Bitcoin model. And if you ask the question of, hey, I want to create a new application, let's say, you know, instead of Bitcoin, I'm, I want to create a, you know, domain name system, some kind of internet registry, whatever other thing that you want to create, you know, pre-Ethereum, what you would have to do is you would have to go and spin up your own decentralized either proof of work or some other like network on your own, right? Every new idea, every new innovation, 
its own like decentralized trust, which is in this case like coming from proof of work. Right? So you could say specifically every new network needs its own proof of work. Okay, this fragments you know security into small islands, you know, one for each new application, and every island has to build its own decentralized trust. So mm -hmm. this was the pre-Ethereum state. And what Ethereum did is build the first marketplace for decentralized trust. That's my way of phrasing it. But this marketplace for decentralized trust is somewhat limited in scope. So what did they do? The Ethereum basically said, you know, any application can now come and reside on top of this common blockchain. You just have to write the program in the Ethereum virtual machine, you know, some common framework. And then you can come and write this program and throw it on top of this like common framework. And you're basically, so what is the economy between the decentralized application and the Ethereum blockchain is the application is consuming trust, consuming trust and uh, paying a fee. Right? That's the transaction fee. Otherwise, you know, you could just take your application and run it on your server. You don't need to pay this. You don't need to have your users pay this fee to this like, you know, platform. The reason they're right. paying this fee to this platform, they're consuming decentralized trust. Okay, so Ethereum created the first marketplace for decentralized trust. You know, they said, hey, I'm creating this common framework. You know, there is this proof of work network at that time. I'm going to make a general purpose programming environment. And anybody can come and like build an application as long as it specifies to my programming environment, the Ethereum virtual machine. They can come and deploy it here. And if they deploy it here, then they just have to pay a fee every time they're kind of consuming a unit of decentralized trust. So in this case, you can think of decentralized trust as this common proof of work, common trust emerging from proof of work. You know, people are spending energy and creating this like, you know, ordering of blocks and inside these blocks are going transactions, which can then be from any of these applications. So Ethereum, the first marketplace for decentralized trust, but it, the marketplace is somewhat flexible, not fully, fully flexible. So the idea is that you know, nowadays people talk a lot about the economics of block space, right? And when I hear the economics of block space, basically they're talking about the economics of decentralized trust. So what happened is you take this decentralized trust and then create bundles of decentralized trust called blocks, right? You know, here here I am selling, you know, the right, because when I'm, when the Ethereum nodes are making or approving a block, they're basically validating all these transactions into like, are they correct? If you execute these transactions, what happens next? And essentially, you just like take this abstract concept of like decentralized trust, have a man, you know, practical instantiation of it, which is in Google work, and then have a particular like specification of it, which is you have to write transactions in a certain format, and then Ethereum becomes a marketplace for decentralized trust. When we talk about economics of block space, we're really talking about a marketplace for decentralized trust. It's just not that flexible. It is particular in its manifestation. It's particular in the programming environment. It is particular in the type of decentralized trust that is being consumed, which is coming from proof of work in the pre-merge Ethereum. So now let's fast forward to the post-merge Ethereum. Right? After in the post-merge Ethereum, Ethereum migrated from proof of work to proof of stake, just switching the underlying guts for like how trust is created. In in it, Post-merge Ethereum, the trust is created out of staking. You just alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation. The idea being that you lock in some capital and then now you lock in, uh, which is in, in the form of Ether in the Ethereum network and lock in this uh, set of tokens and you're promising that you will deliver, you know, you will create blocks correctly. Or you're promising that you're holding to how you are providing trust correctly. So in, in some sense, the economics underwrites that uh, correctness. And so one very important economic transition that happened with proof of stake is where people talk about externalities and like energy and all these things and like not doing a lot of emissions in both carbon emissions and token emissions, right? Like, so these are things people talk about, but there is another very, very important thing that happened with proof of stake, which is the first time in which we can have both positive and negative incentives inside the blockchain. When you stake and people commit a certain amount of stake and they behave badly, 
they stay can be taken away because there's an actuation mechanism. There is a mechanism to take away somebody's stake because it's inside and inherent in a blockchain. There's no actuation mechanism to go and burn somebody's mining equipment, which is, you know, in the proof of work era. So to run a digital economy, which you talk about a lot in this podcast, you know, or a digital nation state or anything like that, you need internal positive and negative incentives. And basically Ethereum kind of uh, pioneered this idea of things like slashing, the idea that if you behave badly in this inside the protocol, your tokens can be taken away. So that that's... You can think of the Ethereum decentralized trust. You know, you ask me, it's like a vague, you know, in the air concept. How do you bring it down to earth and like manifest it? There are two dimensions of decentralized trust coming in the Ethereum proof of stake world. One is what I would call economic trust. Economic trust is how much of stake has been locked up, and you know, when when we are making a statement, a commitment, a block validation. How much of stake is backing, which means if that statement was wrong, how much of stake is liable to be slashed or, you know, burnt, that gives you a certain amount of economic trust. The cool thing about economic trust is it's not reliant on, you know, I'm separating economic trust and decentralization and economic trust is, can stand on itself without having to be decentralized. What do I mean by that is like one node putting up $20 billion and making a credible claim that this statement is correct, otherwise I'm losing $20 billion. And 20 million nodes putting $1,000 each. It's kind of the same thing as far as economic trust is concerned. You know, you right. basically have, you have the ability to slash $20 billion, whether it comes from 20 million people or it comes from one person, 20 billion is 20 billion. So that's economic trust. And the cool thing is economic trust is useful in the dimensions where you can have provable attributable violations. In software, I can verify that Tasha made two signatures. She put up $20 billion. Now, you know, she's made double signature, you know, on the, on the one side, you know, block number 30 is X. On the other side, there's a statement that block number 30 is Y, and that's just incompatible. Should not be making that statement. Now your $20 billion can be taken away. So that's the core of economic trust. And economic trust is actuated only when there is a slashing ability, the ability to take away this money. Okay. There is another dimension of trust in Ethereum proof of stake, which accrues out of decentralization, not out of economic trust. And why do we need this? Like now that you have economic trust, why why, why do we need this like random object for decentralization? And the reason we need decentralization is there are aspects of the protocol which are simply not slashable. To give you an example, what if the group, you know, if, you know, one person, Tasha has put down $20 billion and, you know, if she makes incorrect statements, that is provable in the protocol because, you know, you should never be able to make a statement that somebody sent money when they didn't send the money because you have that cryptographic signature, you know, it's attributable. But what if Tasha doesn't include some people's transactions? Right, like, you know, she's put on 20 billion, she's the only person running the network. She doesn't include, like, anybody's transactions who hasn't given her a bribe. Okay, do that. Now, that's a problem. That's a huge problem, right? It's a violation of the protocol liveness, which means you cannot have new people, new honest people wanting to transact with the blockchain have been blocked out. And there's no redressal if you had just economic trust because there's no way for all of us to know that you know, Tasha is not including the transactions or Tasha got the transactions or didn't get the transactions because there is no objective way to know what transactions were floating around in the network. So one way of thinking about it is the transaction mempool is like kind of like a river flowing. And what's happening is the block producers are taking a snapshot and freezing it in time and saying that's the block, right? Like the river of transactions flowing through the mempool and then you just freeze it and take a snapshot and then upload it and call it a block, right? Now, whether you're doing it correctly or not is not attributable because, you know, somebody has to be sitting by the river side to know, like, what the river was at the time. And that's just not a simple, easy thing to attribute back. Okay, so there are, like, extreme mechanisms in the Ethereum protocol. Ethereum is one of those, like, absolutely insanely well-designed proof of stake protocols where, like, there are mechanisms. For example, the community could come together and, like, slash... Um, 
Tasha because you know she's not including anybody's transactions when it's very egregious when we can get societal agreement there is a way there is a way in the Ethereum protocol to do it actually without doing a hard fork it's called user activated software this is a very very cool method that Ethereum pioneered for just because in proof of stake networks there is this concept of finality and so on it's very difficult to do this but Ethereum has a way of doing it but the end of the day the point is to slash somebody for misbehavior which is not provable and algorithmic requires like the entire Ethereum community to agree and so on and it's just highly contentious and should not be used so what's so I talked about one dimension of the decentralized trust economics and that's simply insufficient to manufacture enough trust to have a working functioning blockchain system, permissionless blockchain system. You need another dimension of trust called decentralization. Decentralization is the idea that not one person has the $20 billion, like many, many people are putting in and running nodes. And why this is important is even if Tasha like excludes the transaction, Sriram can include the transaction in the next block or somebody else can include a transaction in the next block because everybody's rotating and there are many, many independent actors in the node. And the assumption is a majority of the actors will not collude. So when we are talking about decentralization, we are basically inducing a level of collusion resistance by having many independent actors have independent incentives to actually try to include those transactions because they're earning this small incremental additional fee. So Okay. So so all right. Uh all that, thanks for explaining. But let's just say set that part aside. Now Ethereum, let's just assume it's got that decentralized trust, settled, resolved, pat down, all good. What's the problem? The problem is now you can only use decentralized trust. This is like, you know, taking, uh, you know, crude oil and then like manufacturing a particular like derivative and then like you can only sell that. That's what Ethereum is selling today is basically taking this crude oil of decentralized trust and then like refining it further and further and saying, I'm selling basically EVM blocks. That's what I'm selling. And what Eigenlayer does is to give you hooks into the decentralized trust natively. So what you can do is you can come and say, hey, I don't like this Ethereum consensus protocol because, you know, because whatever you write into the EVM, it's going through this particular coordination and consensus protocol. And it may have its own scalability limits. It may have its own like set of features and deficits. And when you want to create a new consensus protocol, a new way for nodes to coordinate, you cannot do it inside the EVM. Ethereum does not have a hook for you to sell decentralized trust at that level, at the raw level, at the distributed system level, at the level at which you can go and say, I can reprogram every node, what they're doing, how they coordinate, how they arrive at consensus. No hooks for you to do it. Eigenlayer is a marketplace for raw decentralized trust. What we'd let you do is anybody who can come up with a new distributed system idea, a new consensus protocol, like imagine why you have Avalanche, why you have Solana, why you have Cosmos, is because you want people to innovate. You want people to come up with new consensus protocols, new virtual machines, new execution layers, new data availability, new authentication machines, new oracles, new bridges. Like you want people to do new stuff. And every new stuff today needs for the people to manufacture both these dimensions of trust that I talked about, economic trust and decentralization. It's insane. It's impossible. It requires a coupling of, you know, the innovator to also be able to create a community of decentralized trust. It's, we feel it's the wrong way in which to orchestrate this ecosystem. So what is Eigenlayer doing? Eigenlayer basically lets anybody buy decentralized trust from Ethereum. What does it mean practically? Every Ethereum staker can opt in to Eigenlayer. Every Ethereum staker can opt in to Eigenlayer and then promise that not only they're validating Ethereum blocks correctly, but they're also validating any new service on Eigenlayer correctly. So Eigenlayer is a marketplace, two sides. One side is stakers opting in and saying, yes, I'm going to opt in to new services. On the other side, builders who have creative ideas about how to build distributed systems, they come in and say, hey, here is a new technology, I'm going to take it and then spread it through all these nodes. And every staker downloads and runs that new software at the core level of the distributed system. It could be all of these things that I talked about can now be built using the same economics and same trust network, same economic trust and decentralization underpinning Ethereum, rather than having to go and create new things every time you have a new idea. So that is the but, core. 
core principle that essentially one way of thinking about it is Ethereum made took Bitcoin and make it more programmable. Eigenlayer takes Ethereum and just makes it way more programmable. Just bad metal distributed system. You can write whatever you want. So in a nutshell, if I if I understand what you're saying is uh, if I'm a validator on Ethereum, let's say I have like uh, 500 million Ether locked uh, in order to validate on Ethereum, but now since I'm already a validator on Ethereum and I'm in good standing, I can also validate transactions uh, for other guys. Uh, maybe I can validate transactions for Solana, I don't know, or for like a wormhole bridge or, you know. So, so essentially, since I'm already here doing validations, uh, you allow me the ability. So basically, you just validate more, uh, do more, do more work, basically. Yeah. For based on based on the the same pool of capital that I have locked up. That's right. So, if so, 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 so then my 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 question is, why can so so essentially I think uh, one of the big things it solves is like uh, capital is scarce, right? So if I have five hundred million ether locked up to be evaluated on Ethereum, maybe I don't have another five hundred million. In addition to be a validator on Solana, so while well, Solana needs needs validator, validators as well, so it's, it's kind of solve the scarcity of uh, capital issue by kind of uh, allow the same pool of capital to do more. Um, why can I not? I don't know if this is technically feasible. Okay, but you have liquid staking on Ethereum, right? So Lido basically is a uh, like a bank, I don't want to call them the bank. They definitely don't call themselves a bank. But let's just say <laughs> you give the ether to Lido, they give you a certificate called staked ETH, which presumably is uh, you know just uh, points to the value of your ETH. Why can't I just uh, stake that? Well, use that uh, like a staked ETH, which is a, another token, as as a, like a staking bond. On some other new protocols, to in order to 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 validate other for other protocols as well. Yeah, you can, and you know, in fact, in Eigenlayer we allow it. So the idea is there are multiple different ways in which you can participate in the Eigenlayer market. There are two ways, main ways that I'll talk about. One is liquid staking. You just take a liquid staking token like the Lido stake and then deposit it on Eigenlayer, and then now you can validate it in in many protocols. The other other part is you can. Um, uh, do what is called native restaking. You know, you don't want to trust a bank, right? We talk about bankless and other things in this space. So if somebody wants to just be themselves and still validate for Ethereum and for all other protocols, they can do it through Eigenlayer by what they do is they go and stake in Ethereum in the code protocol and then they get a withdrawal receipt, like who can withdraw the money and take the withdrawal receipt and send it to the eigenlayer contracts. So the eigenlayer contracts holds the power to withdraw the state from the Ethereum protocol. So now you yourself at home, you're sitting and you're doing validation for Ethereum, but you can also now do validation for whatever new things that you have opted into. The difference between just, even if we just take the liquid staking part, the difference between eigenlayer and like each new protocol having, saying that just drop, you know, deposit state, state deed here is that Eigenlayer is a, is a source of pooled security, right? Once you have enough people on Eigenlayer, they can restake on any number of protocols. So that's like having a common pool of security that participates in many, many things, as opposed to each protocol now has to compete for the stake beat, right? Like there are 30 protocols, there's Solana, there's Cosmos, and there's like Wormhole and all, and they're fight and like the total amount staked on each of them would be one thirtieth at best. So instead, on uh, Eigenlayer, the same pool of capital validates all of these different things. Depending on who opts in, who has the infrastructure, at the extreme case, all the stakers opt in and validate all these services. Okay. So in that case, if I'm a validator on Ethereum and I opt into all of your other uh, players in the marketplace, so I validate for all of them, um, what, what, what's the return? Like to me, what's 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 the like a format yes. of the return? Yeah. So you know, each of these protocols may have their own ways of payment. Let's take the simplest case. Like you, somebody's building a storage protocol on top of Eigenlayer, and 
says, okay, whenever you store one gigabyte of data, you'll get one unit. So there's some, whenever somebody is writing a new service, there are three things they specify. They specify registration condition, who can participate, right? You need 32 ETH or you need 3000 ETH or you need three ETH to participate. So that's registration conditions. Second one is payment conditions, like per, you know, per unit of service, what am I paying, you know, per ETH, per GB of storage, I'm paying one ETH, the service is paying. So somebody is consuming the storage service, right? The people who are consuming the storage service will need to pay a fee. And that fee gets divided among the stakers. Right? So that's the model. And the third thing they need to specify is what is the negative incentives, right? Like you claim to store something and actually you don't store it. Then there will be like a on-chain Ethereum contract that will ask, hey, produce the data that you stored, randomly sample them or something. And if they don't produce the data, then they lose it. Then they lose the money. So these are the three things, registration, uh, positive incentives, negative incentives are all specified on Ethereum smart contracts. So whether they get satisfied is determined by Ethereum, not by some, you know, human beings. So, 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 so you're saying like, take the storage example. So if I'm doing the, the if I'm doing work for that storage protocol as well, am I getting the return back in that, in the token of that storage protocol or in Ether? It could be, I mean, the simplest thing is that you'd get it in Ether, but mm -hmm. I'm sure people will experiment paying in other tokens. So that's the other for, you can pay in any any token that the validators opt into. So EigenLayer is an opt-in market, right? Like the terms of the trade are specified by the services and whichever stakers want to opt in, they can opt in. So that's what happens. Like you come and say, hey, I'm paying in Tasha tokens. And then like... Yeah. The stakers say, I don't like it, they, they can opt out of a particular service. EigenLayer is not like a union that everybody has to participate in everything. EigenLayer so, is a free market. So anybody will look at it and say, okay, Tasha tokens, is it good or bad? Or is it Ether or Bitcoin? They'll opt in or not opt in. Yeah, but, but is there a limit in terms of how much I can opt in? Because no. if there's no limit, I can do, you know, no. I, I will opt in everything, even yeah. if I think, okay, Tasha token is not really a thing, but, yeah. you know, why not? Yeah, sure, you know, go ahead and opt in. There's no, the, the only thing you have to actually evaluate when you're opting in is what is the operational cost, you know, that you're, you know, just look at the microeconomics of this, right? So you have to do some work, right? It's a storage protocol. You opt in, you have to do the storage, right? If you do the storage, it costs you like more than one ETH to store one gigabyte and they're paying one ETH per gigabyte, then you should not opt in. Like it's not rational for you to opt in. So that's the operational cost. Then you're also taking some risk, uh, risk premium. The risk premium is that, you know, you have to make sure to comply to the conditions of the slashing contract. Like they are basically saying that if you don't store, you will lose your deposit. Like you may lose your entire 32 ETH. And you have to look at it and understand what the contract says. And, you know, when you're opting in, that's the, the terms of service is returning to the service contract. And you say, yeah, you know, I opted into the service contract and the service contract says it will randomly sample nodes and they have to produce the data. And if you don't produce the data, it will slash X amount. Maybe that's one, maybe that's 32. And you have to look at it and say, oh, is the risk worth it for my like return? Number one, risk plus operational cost is it greater than the fee that you're receiving? That's how any transaction works, and that's exactly how you should do it. So if I understand correctly, that risk from a, presuming like if I'm an honest player, so I don't make any deliberate mistakes, but it could be like a mechanical or- It could be smart contract risks or technical mistakes, yeah. your node got shut down. Of course, you know, when we're designing the platform, we're trying to make sure that people, when they build and onboard new middlewares, we have some, initial like you know onboarding conditions and you know doing smart contract audits and things like that but what if the smart contract has a bug right like and so on so you should just be careful when you're opting in and it's just the same as anywhere else when you're staking there are slashing conditions and if there are slashing conditions in a new protocol you may be subjected so you have to make sure to wet all of them before opting okay so i think we talked enough about like a very basic in ballpark, the mechanism. So I'm not going to ask you any technical questions because that's not my, you know, expertise. I cannot ask questions like that without like uh, you, you laugh at me. So I'm not going to do that. So, uh, but <laughs> let's talk about like maybe the syst systematic implications. If 
something like restaking, which Eigenlayer is doing, is something that really like that really gets big, right? So uh, basically, on the upside, it definitely improves the capital efficiency, so to speak, right? So because now I have one pool of capital invested as a validator, I can earn like multiple sources of yields from everywhere, all the projects that I opt in. Some of the yields are higher risk than others, but you know, more options. That's the bottom line. So potentially my yields are higher. So what's the what's the what what will be the like a kind of uh, impact to the to the system's equilibrium? I think th that to me is a very in interesting question. Oh. So let let's just start with um well I think this 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 one is pretty obvious. What will be the impact to to the amount of ETH staked? Yeah, so basically like you know if Today you have 25 million staked, and that's because some amount of ETH is being emitted for it. And you know, and people don't stake more because you know, whatever the APR keeps decreasing in the Ethereum, there's a reward curve, and like people have fine, you know, found the equilibrium of the APR right there. And because Eigenlayer can augment that yield instead of like whatever is being paid today, there's a kind of chunk paid on top, you know. Um, what'll happen is that it'll stretch the total amount staked, right? So the total amount staked will basically be, will increase and the equilibrium point will be where, like the net APR, if let's say today's APR equilibrium is 4%, like the net APR including eigenlayer plus Ethereum is 4%, it'll just move staking all the way up to that. So that's what will happen. And because Ethereum has a decreasing curve, right? Like over, as more gets staked, the, the reward gets decreased. So you basically the gap is being filled in by the eigenlayer staking. Okay, so 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 basically your point is it will increase the amount staked on on, on Ethereum. All right, so let, let's let's break 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 that down a little bit, okay? Because uh, let's just say like today, uh, eigenlayer you know starts operation. Like uh, options for yields are more, yields are higher. So you attract more people like staking, more validators, uh, putting capital into the ecosystem. But then you also have an inverse relationship, like in terms of ETH, like a base yield, right? It's like a more stakers, less yield, right? For everybody. So that's the inverse relationship. You have more stakers, that means like base yield on Ethereum base layer comes down, All right? So basically now the ecosystem has eigenlayer, everybody, Yield, the yield earned by everybody has two components. One is the Ethereum base layer yield. The other is the whatever other protocols you opt in with different risk levels that yield that you earn. So in the equilibrium, <laughs> since your first part is going down <laughs> and your second part is whatever that is. So I, I actually am not sure. I, I think- in, So in terms if, the, if the risk of eigenlayer is zero, Right. If perceived risk of eigenlayer is zero, then essentially yeah. you basically come back to the same APR, right? Like that's what it is. So essentially what you could do is you take the entire eigenlayer yield, which is all the services bundled together. And then like you take that amount, whatever that's X hundred million or something. And then you add that to the, to the current like emission and then like see where it meets, you know, the same percent for 0.4% or something, whatever it is today. That's how I would estimate or guesstimate the the total amount stake. The APR will remain the same if it is perceived as zero risk, right? That's the cool thing about Eigenlayer is there'll be services that will be perceived as low risk. There'll be services that will be perceived as high risk. And it'll, instead of the stakers being treated as a union, as a collective, as a group that has like this homogeneous risk and reward preferences, they'll be highly heterogeneous risk and reward yes. preferences. Somebody will say, yeah, you know, I'm going to take more risk. Somebody will say, I, I like Tasha token. Somebody will say, I hate Tasha token, right? Like that's how the market will kind of bifurcate. And somebody will say, you know, I have X computation infrastructure, right? And they'll say, okay, I can either accommodate it for like validating social networks or I can accommodate it for validating DeFi. People will take, and because, you know, when you validate social networks, you get paid maybe in the social network token. When you validate DeFi, you get paid in the DeFi token, which is exposure on different dimensions. So reward preferences will bifurcate. Yes. People will say, yeah, I, I'm taking a positional bet. I'm filling my, like, block space. It's not block space now, but I'm filling my decentralized trust. 
to more on social networks because over a four year period that's going to take off so that'll be all these it's a rich and variegated market that we will see rather than this unionized model that we are seeing today in staking which is that everybody is the same and equal instead everybody is different they have different computational uh, ability they have different risk preferences they have different reward preferences and we want to create a free market of recent questions yeah so so i think that that word you use like more heterogeneous right uh is is the is the right word here because uh Essentially, because you have like a marketplace for different protocols with different risk levels and different jobs and types of jobs and need to get done. You like uh, that ecosystem will attract like a more diverse set of uh, validators and capital in terms of their risk tolerance. So in that sense, you will see like a larger that, that, that could lead to a larger pool of capital being attracted to the ecosystem, not because of the yields going up, because the equilibrium is whatever it is, but it's because you now have the options for a diversified set of risk options for different players. So um, that's, that, that's, that's quite interesting because uh, now, like right now, I really, I don't see why people are staking on Ethereum, to be honest, but, you know, that's just a, like my particular risk preference because, you know, if I'm like earning 4% a yield on Ethereum, I can earn like 5.5% on U.S. Treasuries in six months. Like, why am I not earning 5.5%? <laughs> so, but, you know, people staking on Ethereum, they expect the price to go up. That's like what it is essentially but the hodl dynamic that yeah <laughs> least when you have that when you give people the option so to you know with staking you also have the option to take more risks then it, it starts to become more attractive to uh you know maybe other players than than the ones who are currently staking but anyway so what do you think this would affect would that affect the volatility of the validator base in terms of the amount staked? Yes, I think there's like two levels of volatility, the total volatility of like, what's the total number of stakers in the entire ecosystem versus there is also volatility of how many people are restaked on a particular service. I expect the second one, like the volatility of stakers in a given service to be very like dramatic, right? Like people will say, oh, this is, Oh, this is not a very interesting service. Nobody's using it, blah, blah. And then suddenly you're like, oh my God, this is like such an awesome thing. Like there's a new token. So people opt in. So that will be that dynamic. But I think the volatility of staking is controlled at the Ethereum base layer very tightly. Like there's a withdrawal queue, there is an entry, exit queue, entry queue. Like these induce enough frictions that you cannot have too high of a volatility on the Ethereum base layer staking. Um, so. Okay. So, so basically, what, what's the withdrawal period of uh, base layer staking right now? It's not a fixed period. There is a queue, which makes okay. sure that not too much of capital. I think you cannot, I don't know the exact numbers. Like, I don't think you can move more than 50% of the current staked amount in less than three months and stuff like that. So as more people want to withdraw, like the queue become larger and larger. So it's basically like, you know, uh, like uh, it, there is a control on the on the rate at which people can exit and enter. That's what the buffers are like. You're inside and like it's going to take you six months to get out. You just wait in the line. So so basically, if if too many people withdraw, they will set some kind of limit. Yeah, it's an automatic like algorithmic uh, shaping of like basically you're waiting in the queue and you cannot have more than X number of withdraw per day. So that's the exit. Okay, I actually didn't know that. I thought it was a fixed period, but. This is like a um, programmed uh, uh, capital control of the Ethereum economy, essentially, you know, like uh, nation state governments do this uh, discretionarily, right? So they have like uh, policies, like in, you know, China, you cannot like take out like a 25K US dollars, uh, more than that, like all at once or mm -hmm. in a certain period. I think that was the policy. But Ethereum is whatever <laughs> it's programmed. Yeah. But, Anyway, the, I, I think the conclusion is uh, uh, all, all of these uh, like large ecosystem, whether it's digital or physical, there there is some mechanism in place to 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 prevent uh, volatile, uh, you know, uh, inflow and outflow of capital. Um, whether that's you agree with that or not, that's like a 
separate thing. We, we know uh, I'm going to talk about that. Okay, but let's just say, let's just say there, there are actually that, like you know uh, mathematical conditions for uh, why this is needed. And I'm not going to go into that in, in terms of like the ability to slash. So basically, the idea is. What if somebody comes in and creates wrong blocks, right? Like they were a validator for some time. Now it's volatile. Everybody left, and then like you know, you you found out that they made wrong blocks. Now you have to go and catch them and slash them. So this was kind of the underlying reason that they introduced this uh, this uh, staking frictions, but that basically also acts as capital control. Okay. So, but let's just say everything equal. All right. We compare two two scenarios. One is there's no eigenlayer, no yeah. restaking. Just basically what yeah. it is right now. Yeah. Situation right now. The other scenario with eigenlayer and restaking, we have two components of yields, the base yield on Ethereum and whatever uh, the services that you opt in to validate for. So that's like uh, everybody gets two components of yield. So in these two scenarios, and, and we already said like, uh, and so I, I think in the second scenario, actually your capital flow will be more volatile. And and the reason is and the reason is now you base layer yield has been pushed down because now everybody has incentive for for the second part more risky part right but that risky part is more of a more volatile yield because presumably those are like uh, smaller players and they're gonna incentivize people with their own tokens is that's to their benefit and then those tokens are more volatile than ether right so. In a kind of like a bear market scenario, you get like a 90% those prices or 90% down of those uh, shit coins or whatever. Sorry, I let me take that back. Just like uh, other, uh, coins, uh, other coins. So, um, so, so, and then you, you suddenly, you, your yields get dramatically dropped, right? This is and already then, there in some sense in Ethereum in terms of MEV, right? Right now, the uh, APRs due to the core protocol are like for. 4.4 and then like APRs to tips and MEV are like two to three percent. So already this is and this the tips and MEV obviously is has the similar dynamic to what you're talking about. So there is some aspect of it already. Maybe it'll increase. Maybe instead of this like variable part being two to three percent, maybe it becomes four to five percent and that'll have some effect. Absolutely. But this is not a non-existent part, right? Already fees is a part and fees has become unlike Bitcoin and other ecosystems. Fees is the dominant portion of the Ethereum ecosystem. Right. Okay. And then, um, what will be the impact? Um, that's this part is uh, what everybody uh, listening will be interested. Who's not an engineer, uh, but instead an investor, what will be the Im impact on token price? What do you think? On what token price? On ETH or something else? On ether. <laughs> I think it's uh, you know if it is. So essentially, like the total value of ETH is, you know, one way of thinking about it is it's like the future like fees that could be earned by staking it. If you think of it as like a kind of a work token, like you have to stake it in order to earn all these yields. So it's possible that like because of the total few future fee opportunity has gone up from just making Ethereum blocks to making blocks for any decentralized trust network that can be supported through this kind of a mechanism. One would assume that it's very bullish, but you know, we're not financial investors, not financial advice. Yeah. So everybody, did you hear that? This is not financial advice, okay? So <laughs> not financial advice. We don't know how what's what's the gonna be the impact on, on either. But but I think if 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 our so go back to our first question. So we said like maybe potentially it will increase the staking rate, right? Yeah. Increase staking rate on ether right. on Ethereum. So more 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 ether will be staked in that scenario with restaking. So it could be you know more more stake meaning less float less uh, floating in available for transaction. Could be like one driver. I don't know. Yeah. So um. So, so one question, Tasha. I don't know if you thought about this like time lock staking, where like you know that's something that we're thinking about. Where you say that, hey, what if you know you commit to a to restaking, you have to stay, like impose frictions, like like when you enter, you already commit that you have to stay at least like X amount of months. Um, I don't know if there is a good analogy for something like this from macroeconomics. 
What what what's the purpose of doing that? The purpose of doing that is to like reduce to, to reduce your volatility. Yeah, well then you have to give people higher yields, right? So it's like if if you if if you want me to put my money in a savings account that's gonna lock up for thirty six months, it's gonna have a higher yield compared to a checking account. <laughs> so uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's all it becomes an equilibrium of whoever goes where that fits their time and risk preference. Exactly. So I, I think that's that's one thing that you know to give, for example, services some assurances of like. You know that there may be ways where stakers can make additional commitments and say that I won't exit, you know, contractually for some period, and then that basically guarantees for a certain service a certain amount of staking. But of course, like you're saying, they have to pay this risk, the temporal risk premium to these guys. Right. So yeah, to incentivize people to actually lock up for longer. So what what do you think this will? So so for 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 Ethereum. Um, it's probably the the impact is not as big as compared to like uh, individual protocols who actually opt like uh, to uh, that use uh, eigenlayer to attract validators, right? So because those are smaller. So um, what will be the what will be the security impact on those? Because uh, like uh, if I'm like a new layer one chain, I don't know, or I'm a, a bridge, Oracle. yeah, or Oracle which is like the type of clients that will use your service. So I could just go out there and try to attract my own raw validator set, right? So in this case, you made, you made it easier for, easier for me because you already have a pool of capital sitting there already validating. And I can just, you know, attract some of those people. But then um, how, how does the risk profile compare? of these two scenarios of I doing it on my own and I use Eigenlayer. Yeah. Um, risk profile to the service, right? Um, the, so the, the, the first point is for the staker, I just wanted to like reiterate this point that like uh, yield on like staking is very different from yield on DeFi where you're basically underwriting price risk and that's how you're earning any yield. Whereas on uh, staking, the way you're earning yield is due to a certain information asymmetry. The information asymmetry is you don't know if you can trust me, right? And whether I'm running the right software and I won't change my mind and run like malicious software any day. And I'm kind of putting my money down and saying that, yeah, I'm just running the right version of the software. So, you know, it, validation yield is predicated on this information asymmetry between like you and me, like you, the buyer of the validation service and me, the provider of the validation service. Therefore, when I'm opting into like 10 or 20 or 1000 validation services, as long as I know that I'm doing the right thing for all of those services, which is in fully in my control, it's very different from getting my like stake 10x leveraged or 100x leveraged on a pricing platform where the price moves 10% and I'm liquidated right like that is a very different set of things that people kind of like put all of this and say it's all leverage it's not we are just making things more programmable making it free for you to enter into credible commitments and contracts based on your money that you have put in okay so that's on the staker side but you're asking on the service side like if i'm building a module which of these like how do i compare so this is tricky to compare because Eigenlayer in the primitive or the version one that I'm talking about is offering pooled security. Let's take the extreme version of Eigenlayer where everybody opts into everything. Right? Who is in Eigenlayer is opting into everything. Uh, let's take this version. Uh, it's not the case, like I said, it's a free market. People can opt into subsets, but let's take the most leveraged version, which is everybody's opting into everything. Now, it's of course going to be very easy for you to attract, uh, you know, $10 billion like restaking even if like you are providing very small amount of yield because everybody's adding on to that yield and you know sustaining that 10 billion dollar of capital it's not you alone who's sustaining it so you can get a much larger pooled security on agonera as opposed to if you went your own way and said that i'm giving rewards on my own and just put eat or some other thing down just for my service maybe you'll get 10 million dollar of security because you're sharing it a thousand other people here you're getting 10 billion of security there so I think security has this like non-linearity, which is, you know, it's very, so now to attack your system, I have to 
you could say like you know people are putting this 10 billion and they can attack all these systems together and that's just much much more difficult than attacking you know than a 10 million dollar pool attacking one protocol is very difficult from a 10 billion dollar pool attacking thousand protocols just the scale of coordination the scale of yeah, after I do the attack, can I actually take away my money? Is there liquidity in exchanges? Are they going to figure out, is the real world going to lock me up? There are a lot of issues that basically make security harder in a, in a pool security manner. In fact, I would contend that this is the reason why Ethereum took off. You know, when Ethereum started, there was exactly the same concern. You could say, hey, why am I like sharing security? Every DAP is sharing security on a common pool. That's what's happening in Ethereum. Right. Every DAP is sharing security on common pool. And you could say, why not a new DAP? Right? Why am I sharing security with a common pool? Why am I not going and buying my own security? That's already a question one should ask oneself. And you know, that's exactly the question many people asked, like when Ethereum started, is this a viable economy to say that pool security is better? But we think actually, and the Ethereum thesis shows clearly, the Ethereum how it is played out shows clearly that people value pool security a lot. And Pool security has this hardening, which is that at a certain scale, you're like, oh, this is enough security. Like Ethereum has 25 billion stake today and has 400 plus billion like economy on top of it, right? And it's because if you attack this, you know, theoretically the 25 billion dollars of stake could attack like the entire economy and take 400 billion away. But that's not how it works in practice because if you attack that, like how are you going to get money out and move all these things out? Everybody knows you made an attack. It's just a very different uh, set of conditions because of, you know, the temporal ability to move money in now. So that's, so security has this hardening, pool security is better because of this hardening. And it's much better for 1000 protocols each to pool and have a $10 billion of security than to have 1000 protocols, each of them have, you know, $10 million of security. So that's really the dynamic that is at play in Eigenlayer. But one, one thing that you're losing when you're coming to pooling is that when you have your own independent like security model, when you have your own $10 million of security for your particular application, the benefit that you have is if that goes wrong, you can slash and use it for a purpose. For example, compensating victims or harmed parties inside your own like blockchain, inside your own application, inside your own Oracle. Nobody's doing this today. I think this is the right structure that whenever there is a slashing, there should be an accompaniment way of redistributing the slashed amount to the harmed parties because, you know, you found the thief, right? Like, and you get the money back from the thief, but you have to give it back to the guy, like, who lost the money. So, and that flow is not yet complete. And we are thinking through, like, various ways. One way is, like, buying insurance bonds against slashing on a like, for example, you buy like insurance bonds. So there's $10 billion of common stake and whichever service, let's say you're running a bridge service and you're very worried about like, you know, how much individual security am I getting? You could say whenever there's a common slashing. So there are two problems that we kind of resolve together. One problem is when there's a common slashing event, which where people misbehave across tens of protocols, how do we divide the slashed amount across these multiple protocols? And the way we do it is using this is not in V1, but we'll do it in V2, which is through like a insurance bond that you have bought against slashing. So you, you as a service hold like a portion of the $10 million worth of a bond, which says that if slashing happens, which only happens if there is a provable malicious thing, then you would get that portion of the money as a bond. So you can have individual attributable security as well as full security built together in common framework. So that's how I play. I see. Well, um, can you tell us uh, about uh, EigenDA because that's a kind of a product that uses your base layer, right? So that's right. Yeah. So we built this like broad-based like uh, marketplace for decentralized trust, and like the one of the things we have to do is to bootstrap this platform. We have to build services and takes and these, these are infrastructure services that take time to build. So we bootstrap our platform by building our own first service, a data availability protocol. And, you know, if you look at the layer two modular ecosystem today, one of the things that's happening is like all of the computation is outsourced. And the only thing that the layer two rollups have to do is to publish the inputs to the computation, the transactions on the Ethereum blockchain. So the cost dynamic of that is that like every time you, every transaction needs to be kind of published on the Ethereum blockchain. So this, uh, what we're building is a layer which just does this because we can absorb a portion of the Ethereum trust, you know, uh, 
we can have new advances in the distributed systems be used to build scalable data availability protocols. And the idea is instead of publishing data that goes to every node and every node has to download and store the data in this like Eigen DA system, every node only downloads and stores a small fragment of the data. But together, all the nodes have enough data. And even if a lot of nodes go away, even if 50% of the nodes go away, you can reconstruct the rest of the data from the remaining, you can reconstruct all the data from the remaining nodes. So that's the core principle of EigenDA. It uses like array codes and polynomial cryptography. You know, we won't get into it. But the core thing is use Ethereum Trust, run like the best ideas out there and you know, how to build scalable data publishing protocols. And that's what EigenDA is. Just to give a sense of numbers, Ethereum's data throughput today is 83 kilobytes per second. So you imagine, don't use Ethereum to do any computation and any of this stuff, just use it to publish data. Like, you know, there's a certain data publication fees. You can ask what is the throughput at which you can do it. That's 83 kilobytes per second. And people talk about like Ethereum is the world computer or whatever, like this is insanely low bandwidth to run the world computer. So our theoretical calculations suggest that the system has like you know, theoretical limits for greater which you can write data is actually way higher, maybe six orders of magnitude. Okay, that's an insane claim. Six orders of magnitude higher without increasing any node requirements. So at the same node requirements as what Ethereum has today, building better distributed systems can increase the data throughput by six orders of magnitude. EigenDA is two orders of magnitude better. It goes from 80 kilobytes per second to 10 megabytes per second. And, you know, we have a roadmap to scale it on the two or three hours. So, so, so in terms of uh, benefits to the users, how, what, what difference would I see if I use like everyday like uh, dApps? Yes. How, so the difference in user experience? The difference in user experience is that like today on blockchains, only you, the use cases that are accommodated on blockchains are the ones where the per transaction fee is a certain like floor amount because you know you have at least published the data and you have to touch the decentralized network in some way. And with EigenDA, what that does is completely transform the user level economics because now everything can be insanely cheap because no transaction uh, ever touches all the nodes. Every transaction only touches roughly two nodes. And so that transforms the cost dynamics in such a way that pretty much anything you can do on the cloud, you can do on, like, so you can think of the cost basis. Of like, like give, give, give us an example that you cannot do right now on the base layer chain. Yeah, if you want to run Twitter or some social network on top of a base layer chain, that's just simply impossible. And, uh, you know, what is the data bandwidth that is going through, like, you know, Twitter or like Facebook, right? It's insane. And the base layer only can handle 80 kilobytes per second. So 80 kilobytes per second is like, 1994 personal internet, right? Like, and we need way higher to run like the global, uh, everybody's like uh, coordination infrastructure. So things like gaming, on-chain gaming, things like social networks, things like, you know, basically the foundations of the metaverse can be built when there is a scalable substrate for uh, data availability, where the cost basis of data is not to have every node download and store something is only to have every node download and store like very small portion of the data. So that's transforms the underlying cost basis. Once you transform the underlying cost basis, you can actually provision a way different category of applications that were simply impossible. So 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 basically the the EigenDA is like a project for decentralized data availability. It's like a, so basically the validators of Ethereum, they're helping to run this. That's right. Helping to pro provide data on That's this, right. uh, on EigenDA. That's right. So they are providing the confirmation that the data has been published and make it available for anybody who wants to download it for a certain period. And when we, when we're thinking through the system, suddenly we are increasing the data bandwidth like massively. And, you know, when you try to think about how one should price it, right? And, you know, right now, pretty much all the blockchains price congestion, right? Like only if there is congestion, there is a non-trivial price being farmed. And this is because, you know, EIP-1559, for example, as the congestion goes up, you just increase the price. If the congestion goes down, you decrease the price to find the price equilibrium relative to the capacity. Imagine a place where the capacity is going to be so high that there is just theoretically assume it's infinity, right? So these kinds of congestion mechanisms are insufficient because you never find like any non-trivial price. Basically, you just like 
price will go to zero when you know you have infinite bandwidth. That's just such a bad way to build systems because as you scale them out, there should be an incentive for people to like provision services. Like it can't be zero price because there's no condition. So really, there are actually three fundamental costs in running a blockchain. One is the capital cost of staking. Like you know, by restaking, we are amortizing that heavily. Then there's the operational cost, which is you know you have to download and store data across like many nodes. Uh, so th that that'll be and by making sure that every node doesn't store download and store all the data, we are reducing the fundamental costs of operation. And then finally, there's congestion costs. By making the capacity very high, we are reducing the congestion costs. So that's the way that we are operating. But the price itself, instead of thinking about pricing it like all the other blockchains today. We are actually uh, thinking about pricing it like cloud services, right? Like, so there is, people talk a lot about like block space being a valuable commodity. Nobody talks about cloud space being a valuable commodity or cloud space being restricted. The cloud space, the total amount of space on like the cloud will stretch. If you want to store more data, they'll put more servers. They'll buy more. Intel will build more. Like TSMC will build more chips, and everybody will put it together for you. That's the same thing that we want to happen. Is that like the amount of capacity should stretch based on the amount of like demand. And so the, the mechanisms we build in EigenDA is basically you can come and as an application, you can buy block space for the next one year. You can say that, hey, I'm buying one MBPS for the next one year. So this gives you price certainty, right? Like when you're running an airline, you can't run an airline when your gas prices are like jet, jet fuel prices are uncertain, right? It's just, you can't price for the future. So that's the same thing that's happening to dApps today. They're suffering through the negative externality of congestion from somebody else. Whereas if they had a reserved link, you know, you come in, you buy data bandwidth just for yourself. You're not touching anybody else. That is reserved for you. And as more people come and ask for more reservation, we can improve from 10 megabytes per second to, like I said, the theoretical limits of the order of terabytes per second. So over time, we can improve the system. So. No. So you're talking about applications that has their own sidechain or rollups, rollups. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we are basically so they, talking about rollups. Yeah. So basically, they do have their own rollups. They're not affected by any other people using other applications, but they will. They can. They can still share the common trust and like so. So one of the points about like the common decentralized trust framework that Eigenlayer is building is if you ask everybody to validate like Ethereum and Solana and all these things, right? Like it's impossible like to for you to validate like thousand chains. But what we're doing is by building the DA architecture inherently, essentially for any new thing that you're doing. You know, you're only downloading that portion of the data, right? Like you're only downloading one end of the data because data is spread across all the nodes. So as more nodes join, you just get like in, inherent scaling. So as more and more services, so our native idea is that like, you know, by building everything modularly, you can actually like get things to scale through the number of nodes. And so every node doesn't have to do all the work redundantly. Okay. So it would be like compared to the rollups today. You know, Optimism or, or Arbitrum, they're running their own sequencers, uh, whatever. Yes. So the two things that they're do doing is that they're running their own sequencer, right? They're publishing the data to Ethereum, right? Publishing the data to Ethereum is costly because now that touches every Ethereum node. Running your own sequencer, on the other hand, is centralized, right? Like, why, why is it centralized? So instead, if there are services on Eigenlayer, for example, a DA service, which basically provides similar decentralization to Ethereum, but reduces the cost massively. That's something that's valuable. On the other side, on sequencer, instead of having a centralized sequencer, if there is a decentralized ordering service that is running on top of Eigenlayer that can be consumed by Optimism and Arbitrum others, that could be quite valuable. So these are the types of services we are expecting to be built and actively partnering with different teams to actually build. So, so in running a rollup, like what's the most expensive part? Like among the different costs that you just today today running a rollup, the dominant cost is publishing data to Ethereum. That's the main thing. That that's why we're building IDA to solve that problem. Okay. All right. Got it. Okay. Um. So how about uh, what what's the current status? Like uh, wh where are you guys uh, uh are right now? Yeah. Uh, we are right now on uh internal testnet. We are uh we built Eigenlayer and the first version of EigenDA and uh. We, have, we are having rollups test the system because, like I said, for rollups, this is a big benefit. They're reducing the cost significantly. Um, and um, over the next 
you know, six months, we hope to be on the mainnet, you know, between Q2 and Q3. Are you going to have a token? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> okay. That's as, what... as much don't know as you can, you can expect. Yeah. Is it is this because you haven't? I'm I'm sure you have given it a thought. It's it definitely it's not because you haven't thought about it, right? So it's not clear what's the right architecture to orchestrate this uh, restaking mechanism. Whether it should be uh, just a kind of a public good, whether it should be a marketplace that we run, and you know the the nice thing is we are relying on Ethereum to provide the decentralized trust. We don't have to be decentralized for that. So there are ways in which it can be structured as a company. There are ways in which we can be structured as a protocol and have decentralized governance. We're thinking through all the possibilities. Oh, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Shriram. This has been a fascinating discussion today. Oh, thank you so much, Tasha. I really appreciate it.